and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host, Titus, and today I'm joined again by Professor Paul Cantor to discuss a movie maker we both love who is in the news now. Tim Burton, his new movie Dumbo, his return to Disney, is out in theaters. A blockbuster in the making, of course. His previous Disney blockbuster was Alice in Wonderland, and that grossed a billion dollars worldwide, which is why I guess they hired him again. Disney does not want talent with a vision ruining their brands, but they bought just that, and as we'll get to show, Tim Burton is all about putting his vision on this Disney property and trying to show what's wrong, actually, with Disney and what it's done to him. He is the movie maker in America who most has concerned himself with freaks, with people who are weird or even downright bizarre, who belong to America in a certain way, but they just cannot get along with the audience, with the various peoples in the various places in the movies, but who have something special in being freaks. They have an unusual power and an unusual perspective. They always, whether heroes or villains, bring certain insights that are simply missing in what we would call the mainstream, the great majority opinion. This makes him very interesting for the lover of liberty, ultimately, because he concerns himself with whether individual liberty can survive against majority opinion. And also with what our entertainment is doing to us, since it continuously recruits freaks and recreates them as celebrities, chews them up and spits them out, and deludes the entire nation in the process, encourages people to live in fantasy land, which is how we get to Walt Disney, of course. Sir, thank you for joining me. I'm glad to hear that you like Tim Burton as much as I do. It was a lovely idea to talk about his movies. So let's start with this new thing now on screens, Dumbo. Well, this is a good moment for me as a critic. In the interest of full disclosure, I have not seen the movie yet. But, you know, anybody can talk about a movie they've seen. But I'm a professional, so I can talk about movies I haven't seen yet. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and, and don't attempt this at home, folks. I'm a professional. Uh, but I have read enough reviews <laughs> and seen enough clips uh, so that I think I do know the movie. And what is obvious about it is it does fit into the Tim Burton pattern, which is to celebrate a freak. Dumbo has these freakishly large ears, and it makes him stand out. People and other animals make fun of him, but yet when he learns to flap his ears and fly, suddenly he's a big act. He becomes a celebrity. And again, that's typical of Burton's characters. It's like Edward Scissorhands, for example, whose freakish hands turn him into the greatest cutter in the world, hair cutting, bush cutting, and so on. And moreover, Dumbo lives in a circus. The circus appears again and again in Burton's career, and the circus is the home for freaks, and where, since they're sharing life with other freaks, they can feel at home, but Burton always shows the tenuous existence of a circus. Somehow the community can't last. Now, from what I can tell, what's very interesting about this film is that it becomes self-reflexive. It's about Burton's own career. It's about Hollywood. It's about Disney itself. The plot is that Dumbo starts off with a kind of classic, old-style, small-town circus, the Medici Circus, run by Danny DeVito, and uh, there's a takeover. 
a larger sort of industrialized circus buys out Danny DeVito and Dumbo ends up in this place called Dreamland, which is a theme park, amusement park, which would seem very parallel to Disneyland. And the sad part of the story is what happens to Dumbo when he's forced to leave this small home-like circus and enter the circus of the big city. It is an image for what the film actually is. Disney did this wonderful animated film in uh, 1941 called Dumbo. I loved it as a child. I was born in 45, so I didn't see the original release, but I remember it vividly. And I was just looking at some clips yesterday. The famous peak elephant sequence in the original Dumbo, I consider one of the great artworks of the 20th century. I mean, Salvatore Dali could not have done better. It is surrealist. Uh, it shows what they learned from doing Fantasia. The integration of the music and the animation is just extraordinary. Anyway, I gather that's somehow imitated in the new film. But in general, what the film charts is exactly what Disney is doing right now uh, and for the foreseeable future. They're taking their old classics, their animated films, and they're using CGI to recreate them as somewhat real action films. And uh, Aladdin is next up. And anyway, yes. And a lot of people are upset with that, and they feel they've gone from their original artistry, they pushed animated art to its climax, and now CGI in some ways is cheapening the effects. And Burton's own career took him from being a marginalized filmmaker. He actually worked for the Disney studio before he even was a filmmaker, but he generally fit into the category of independent filmmaker, a sort of maverick. And he has gradually over the years been mainstreamed. And I think his earliest films are by far his best films. Some of his later films, including Alice in Wonderland, have really disappointed me. And so I thought we'd go back and go over his early career and talk about films I've actually seen. Uh, <laughs> Dumbo can supply us with a template for understanding these earlier films, because it is a Tim Burton film. And it is one of the extraordinary aspects of his career that he has been able to take other people's work and turn it into his own work. But first, I do want to say we did discuss Mars Attacks in our last podcast when we were talking about H.G. Wells, War of the Worlds, Alien Invasion Story, so we won't talk about it much this time, but I'll just very quickly say how it does fit into this pattern we're going to be talking about, that the film divides the world into the establishment, the military, the presidency, the Congress, the media, the scientific establishment, and they're trying to deal with this invasion from Mars and are completely unsuccessful. And then the film turns and, in fact, intercuts scenes of what are presented literally as trailer trash. These people, it turns out, solve the problem precisely because they are, in their own way, freaks. It turns out you can destroy the Martians with the yodeling of Slim Whitman. <laughs> country and western scene who was a kind of nationwide freak i mean his records were advertised on late night television these characters again live in a trailer and they're all sort of redneck types they end up in las vegas and las vegas is a circus and in fact they get bound up with a uh, casino bouncer who's played by the great football player jim brown 
playing the role of a sort of Muhammad Ali figure, a heavyweight champion boxer who's now been reduced to being a greeter bouncer in a Las Vegas casino. And, and then they link up with the real Tom Jones playing himself the great Welsh singer. He's one of these figures who occupies a marginal position in popular culture. He's actually a wonderful singer. He's got an incredible range and an incredibly powerful voice, but he's certainly scorned by music critics, but embraced by the lower middle-class crowd in Vegas. And so it's this ragtag group of circus freaks gets together and saves the world. So there's how Mars Attacks would fit into this conversation that we hadn't talked about it so much last time. Yeah, we didn't explore this angle at the time, but it is that which makes each Tim Burton movie a Tim Burton movie. It is always about where freaks stand outside of society. There's no pretense that we are all exactly the same and can just get along. But it turns out that society actually needs the freaks. They need to learn some things about how to deal with things, and to some extent at least, they can make a good contribution, and sometimes a unique contribution. Uh, whether it's cases like Dumbo, which I've seen, I've just reviewed, and which is all about Tim Burton trying to kill Walt Disney. That's the villain in the story, the creator of Dreamland. Yeah, that is Dreamland. It's the magic of the movies. It's the fantasy that America has been selling itself on for a century and which is now coming to a crash as celebrities are themselves now revealed to be freaks. And of course, in some cases, way beyond bizarre into criminal territory. People aren't charmed. People are not enchanted anymore by the enchantment. They're disenchanted. They're coming to grips with the fact that entertainment has always tolerated a great deal of corruption, tyranny, business exploitation of people's fantasies, and that celebrity has been a bad thing for America, all things considered. It's something that Tim Burton seems to have known from the beginning, because he was a freak. He was a talented art guy. He did go to Disney to draw before he got into the movies. And he's always been a bizarre kind of guy. In the 80s, this was called goth, like Edward Scissorhands. You know, he wanted The Cure to write the music for that movie, the goth band par excellence, all the doomed romance you can live with. So he is, to a very large extent, the man to make these kinds of movies, to tell these kinds of stories, because they do represent him. And that's an all-American thing. Talk about what you know, to make an example in a certain sense of yourself, to stand up for yourself. Yeah, parenthetically, in response to what you just said, Johnny Depp's performance in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory just shocked people at the time because he channeled Michael Jackson in playing that part, even to the extent of sort of playing the part in whiteface and virtually imitating Michael Jackson in his vocal mannerisms. And of course, we all know about Michael Jackson now. Yep. So let's go back to Pee Wee and quite frankly there too, Paul Rubens got arrested and charged with uh, doing something nasty in a movie theater. So all of this does tie together. But going back to Pee Wee, it's an interesting story. And let me see, it was 1985 was the film. No one knew who Tim Burton was then. And we all thought it was a Pee Wee Herman movie. That is, we thought the genius behind it was Pee Wee Herman. I was a big fan of Pee Wee Herman. I'd watched the television show and his specials. And here was this marvelous movie, which I, I loved from the beginning. And who even bothered to look who the director was? 
I remember it was really only when Beetlejuice came out just a few years later that we noticed, okay, Tim Burton, maybe this Pee Wee Herman movie was really a Tim Burton movie, and that's what it has turned out to be. Now, there was a marvelous confluence between Paul Rubin's imagination as Pee Wee Herman and Tim Burton's imagination. Both of them are obsessed with childhood, and their imaginations are rooted in childhood, and many of Paul Rubin's obsessions come up in the film, but it's because Burton is reinforcing them. And it's a marvelously funny movie. It's quite brilliant cinematically, but the reason it is, it's just so based in Hollywood convention. And that, I think, turns out to be the key to Tim Burton. I mean, he reflects the sort of thing you can see in George Lucas and in Coppola and in Scorsese, that this was the first generation of directors who had so fully grown up with movie history that they're always reacting to earlier movies and crafting scenes out of earlier movies. And it's obvious in Burton's case that he just grew up with movies the interesting thing in his case is he wasn't growing up so much with Fellini and Kurosawa and Orson Welles, that is to say with the great movies, but he was a great fan from childhood of Hollywood B-movies. And he loved horror movies. He had a fixation on Vincent Price and used him in Edward Scissorhands. He loved flying saucer movies, and that's how we got Mars Attacks. And in Pee-wee's Big Adventure, he's got scenes out of biker movies, He's got a moment with a dinosaur in it, which is you know typical of the... He, he loved things like animation, and he imitates those effects in it. And, of course, the most brilliant thing in the film is how a film about Pee-wee gets made when in his search for his bicycle. And again, by the way, people see the film as an imitation of uh, Vittorio De Sica's great 1948 film, uh, Bicycle Thieves. It's actually the complete opposite that's a film of Italian realism and it's this really gritty, realistic view of life and Pee-wee's big adventure is this continuous fantasy. But anyway, through some absurd twist of plot, Pee-wee ends up on a movie lot. He's trying to recapture his, his stolen bicycle. And as a result, the movie studio wants to make a movie of his life. And so they bring in James Brolin to play Pee-wee Herman. It's just a perfect example of Hollywood miscasting, and his little girlfriend, Dottie, gets played by Morgan Fairchild. And it actually is Burden's illustration of how Hollywood operates, that it takes the very ordinary and the freakish and tries to glamorize it and mainstream it. There's a wonderful moment in scenes from the movie they're making where Pee Wee Herman plays a bellhop, and his voice is dubbed. <laughs> Yeah, We yeah. see the actor Paul Rubens there, and uh, out comes the voice, and it's this deep, masculine voice. And you, you don't have to be a movie critic to realize we're seeing that the movie studio during private screenings figured out that Pee Wee Herman's voice didn't test well with audiences. And so yep. like, they bring in someone to dub for him. So, I mean, all the things you see in Burton's movies are there in Pee Wee's Big Adventure. Pee Wee is a loner. He's famously a loner. He ends up with loners like this bike gang. His opponent is a nasty fat guy. And the rich kid. Yeah, right. Yeah, which again, I guess, prefigures the Walt Disney figure in Dumbo. And the film, obviously, 
it must mirror Paul Rubin's life in some ways, but it mirrors Burton's life that Pee-wee doesn't fit in and he is a freak and people make fun of him, but he becomes the hero just because he won't accept life the ordinary way and wants to fight it. Yep. Then triumphs in the end. Uh, you know, I felt it was a brilliant film at the time. I just didn't realize that the brilliance was largely coming from this guy, Tim Burton, whom I'd never heard of. Yeah, for a movie debut, it is incredibly deft and it is incredibly sure of itself. Tim Burton's first story already, as you put it, includes all these things from his own views on movies and on America. It's an American road trip, most of the movie. Yeah. And in that sense, more like, you know, you jack your walk on the road or things like that, but done in comedy, poking fun at Americans, but also through the use of genre movies all the different encounters on the road point to different genres. It's quite loving of American ordinariness, which if you look at it, is more bizarre than it seems and includes all sorts of people with all sorts of aspirations. Yes, these roadside attractions, for example, that he keeps encountering uh, that are so definitive of America, like a giant dinosaur in the middle of the desert at a gas station. And all that kitsch stuff represents people's aspirations in Tim Burton's mind, and he doesn't look at them with contempt. Yes, that's a good way of putting it. He he really doesn't look at B-movies with contempt. And again, that self-assurance in the film you referred to really does stem from his knowledge of movies. I mean, you name a genre, and he knows it, and he knows the conventions of the genre, and he can just produce them with ease, and he's not making fun of the genres. I mean, there's a great admiration for P-movies in Tim Burton's life, and he actually claimed that television shows were a great influence on him. All of these things, all of the genres that have some success, say something about American society, about the kinds of stories that people find plausible, and if you pay attention to them, you can see why, at least if you've got this sort of poetic insight, like Tim Burton, or of course the rest of us can learn from him, why is it that these things are interesting? What have they got to offer? Why do people like them? He's got that covered. He only really hates, as you pointed out, what Hollywood does. Hollywood takes something like Pee Wee Herman, which is freakish, but insightful. It's what people call genuine. And instead turns it into glamour, turns it into a James Bond picture, yeah. right with the James Bond soundtrack, with uh, all the kicking and the gadgets and the sexy women and the smoking and all that stuff which is tourism for people who think they're sophisticated. That's what James Bond movies always did. They took you to all these exotic locations, all this prestigious stuff. Whereas he takes you on a tour of America. From Nowheresville small town down to the Alamo. These are all American things to do. And they showed that Tim Burton understands that Americans just, they really have aspirations that go beyond their little place. But he would like people to turn those aspirations in a more American direction and less in the European-loving sophistication. Yes, I'm glad you brought up the James Bond aspect, because Pee-wee starts off with a really cool little bicycle, and it's customized. But in the film, it ends up this sort of James Bond super cycle that has all these gadgets with it and that is weaponized. And that's so typical of the film. But yeah, yes, that great moment with the Alamo uh, when he's knocked unconscious and people are asking him what happened, what happened. He says, I, I, I can't remember what happened. I remember the Alamo. 
<laughs> of course, remember the Alamo. But just the fact that he discovers, he was told there's bicycles in the basement of the Alamo, and he shows up and the, discovers the Alamo has no basement. And again, in Alamo, it's one of these kitschy symbols of America that had resulted in this kitschy movie, The Alamo, with John Wayne, and with Burden, everything has to be a movie reference. So, yeah, it's about the real America that's out there between the coasts and therefore not fully understood by Hollywood. It's one of the best first movies of a director I can think of. I mean, there's Citizen Kane, and then there's Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Uh, (laughs) uh, There's some truth to that. Yeah, it's also a movie about growing up. Yeah. In the beginning, Pee-wee is a childish creature, not just because of all the childish humor, all the ways in which he's really, really queer. It's just that he's so fixated on his bike, which is completely understandable, because if you were a kid a long time ago, a bike was freedom. Just like for a teenager, a car was freedom of the soul. And just like, say, Tom Wolfe went around asking teenagers why is it that they customize their hot rods, so also you can see with Pee-wee and his bike why he's so obsessed over it. Yeah. And it makes perfect sense. It makes you free. But he's too fixated with it, and he doesn't care about anybody else, and he's incredibly selfish to begin with. It takes a lot of road bumps. It takes a lot of getting knocked upside the head for him to realize that he's lost and needy in a way and that he needs other people and should treat them with respect and make friends, which he does learn to do. At the end, he's enough of a grown-up to want to date Dottie, whom he spurned in the beginning. And he's especially enough of a grown-up to reject Hollywood and glamorization. He doesn't stick around for the end of the movie made out of his life because he's already lived it. He doesn't need to see the fake story. That's a great line. I lived it. His spurning of Dottie shows his childishness, that he's not ready to grow up and have a more mature relationship with a woman. And that's one of the things he learns in the course of the film. Dottie is played beautifully in that film by Elizabeth Daly. She really captures just what she needed to in the part, and even just enough sexuality to make it work. One of his great abilities over his career has been in casting, in effect, and his ability to get wonderful performances often out of actors and actresses who are otherwise ordinary or don't normally turn in great performances. Yep. Can we move on to Batman now? I would. Um, there's a lot to say about Beetlejuice, but I really want to talk about the two Batman movies. Sure. Yeah, I think they're his greatest achievement, and especially Batman Returns. But again, you can see him take material that he didn't create and transform it into Tim Burton material. And that really shows the power of his imagination. No one knew what he was going to do with Batman. And indeed, he transformed the pop culture Batman into something closer to the original comic books. He was facing the fact of the 1960s television series with... uh, Adam West. Yeah, Adam West. And that had camped up Batman and turned it into something entirely comical. And Tim Burton took it and turned it into something very, very dark. And that whole notion of Batman as the Dark Knight and therefore Batman as a freak. That's even stronger in Batman Returns, which I'll, I'll get to in a moment. But I have somewhat mixed feelings about the first Batman he did. I think the soundtrack from Prince, unfortunately, dates the movie. I think it was a mistake. Batman should be timeless. 
Yeah. And therefore, the music shouldn't be so easy to identify with one period. And I do think Jack Nicholson dominates the film. Yes. Actually puts Michael Keaton as Batman into the shade, though it is a stunning performance by Jack Nicholson and probably is responsible for much of his success. I love Anton First's contribution. He was the production designer, and he gave Gotham that incredibly modernist and at the same time gothic look. In some ways, it goes back to Fritz Lang's Metropolis, but the visual realization of Gotham City, I thought, was extraordinary. And it goes back to the heart of Batman as a serious crime fighter and the nature of the villain here in the case of Joker. It's interesting. I looked this up and Burton called the original Batman a duel of the freaks. It's a fight between two disturbed people. That's how Batman, in fact, mirrors the Joker. And they are, in effect, both masked. And Burton brings out the backstory of Batman, that he is an orphan. And again, that's typical of his characters, that they've lost their parents. That has twisted them. Yeah, because normal people don't go through these kinds of shocking stories. You have to be very, very abnormal to want to be a hero or a celebrity. Yes, and it's only because of that abnormality that you're able to deal with these freakish criminals. And there's something obsessive-compulsive about Batman in the film, just as there is about the Joker. Now, the strangest and in a way most interesting aspect of the film is the treatment of the art world in it, that paintings become so important in it. It's almost a Tom Wolfe-like comment on the absurdity of the modern art world. Yes. The Joker and his gang go to deface artworks at some museum, and the museum has a very good collection of art. Rembrandt, self-portraits, they're famous paintings uh, that are not all in any one museum, but he and his gang go around uh, painting over paintings. He signs, I think it's one French Impressionist painting, but then the gang is going by a Francis Bacon painting. I looked it up, and it's called Figure with Mead. And the Joker stops one of his gang members from defacing that painting and says, I like this one. That's really, again, a very weird moment at a level of sophistication you don't normally expect, even by movies, by great artists, that the moment should turn on a painting by Francis Bacon, who's obviously well-known in the art world, but maybe not all that well-known to the movie-going public. The Joker describes himself as the world's first homicidal artist, speaks of being the avant-garde of the new aesthetic. That's really a wonderful comment, I think, on the absurdity of the modern arts, the contemporary art scene, that things that are so ugly are being presented as beautiful art. It really shows the nihilistic aspect of much contemporary art criticism, that it rejects the beautiful art of the past, You know, it's like Marcel Duchamp drawing a mustache on the Mona Lisa, which was a typical move of the whole Dada movement in art. We shouldn't forget that all these movies have writers, and they are not completely the creation of Tim Burton, though there's such a consistency among his films that we sense he is imposing his artistic consciousness on everything. But again, to think of adding this aspect to the film, that what we're witnessing is the nihilistic tendency in modern aesthetics, the sheer delight in disruption and deconstruction. Yeah. I, I remember being quite struck by that and seeing that film. 
Joker is one of the early incarnations in popular movies. Let's remember, this was a blockbuster. It, it wasn't aimed at blockbuster cinema. It was a cheap movie to make, but it grossed a couple of hundred million dollars in America, yeah. and it launched all these later movies, including Burton's own Batman Returns, which made another almost 200 million dollars in America. So they were incredibly successful, incredibly popular, and they introduced this character, Joker, somebody who is living out the all-American idea of self-expression, self-creation, individualism, but in a very, very crazy, nihilistic way. And he is associating himself with revolution in the arts because that too is about self-creation and about the imposition of the views of the artist over everything else. And that sort of thing speaks to Joker because it is so obviously, perversely, shamelessly tyrannic as an attitude. He wants the kind of attention this kind of shocking modern art also wants. And on the other hand, he is willing to take this nihilism, so to speak, into politics. He doesn't have the limits of the critic or the aesthete or the revolutionary artist. He is all about homicidal art, about expressing himself, his psychology, exactly as he wants it, as he dreams it. That is to say, with him, it's not merely a matter of expression or representation. The dreams, or rather the nightmares, really walk the streets now. They have come to life. Yes, and it's even there in his story, which is that he's been horribly disfigured in an accident, and now he gets to recreate his face with a kind of integrated mask, and that's the notion of self-expression. Because he's been destroyed, he gets to recreate himself. The film is all about the connection between destruction and, and a kind of creation that is based on destruction, which is the theme of much contemporary art and even a good deal of modern art at the middle of the 20th century. That seems to me a kind of depth that you don't expect in a Batman movie. Yes, that's true, and it brings out the dark side of the freaks, which is not rare. And in a Tim Burton movie, a clown is always bad news. A clown yes. is a circus freak, but is the wrong kind of circus freak. There's always something dangerous about that. And I guess Jack Nicholson did it for the first time. It appeared many times afterwards, of course, in his movies. It seems that the problem with this kind of freakishness is when once you slip the limits of law, when once you step outside normality, once you affirm that you're not part of the majority, you're not the same as everybody else, you have to affirm that individuality in ways that everybody else would agree with. Not agree with in the sense that they will approve of your individuality, but in the sense that they will also recognize your individuality. So long as you act normal, you're just like everybody else, so you're not yourself. So long as you're normal, you're always saying no to the nightmarish desires. But if you stop saying no, if you start saying yes, if you turn nightmare into a form of art, then you will be distinguished from everybody else. And the more you terrorize them, the more it's obvious that they to admit that you're uniquely individual. Yes, that's the central problem in Burton's films. How do you find your individuality? And I think that takes us to Batman Returns, which is the film that concentrates most on this. But the first thing I have to say about Batman Returns, I did review it for this conversation. It's the first film about Donald Trump. <laughs> in the form of Max Schreck. And I can't remember if I vaguely thought that at the time. 
But in retrospect, it's really striking. Max Schreck, who's played by uh, Christopher Walken, is this capitalist in Gotham City. And I started noticing his name is on his buildings in giant letters. His toy store is Shrek's, and you just see it in the big letters. And, and he's got really weird hair. That's well into Trump's celebrity. And I, I googled Max Shrek and uh, Donald Trump, and, and some people have made this observation recently. And the thing that's so striking is he runs for mayor. He helps the penguin run for mayor, and the penguin's name is Oswald Cobblepot. And the slogan is, Cobblepot can clean it up as if it's draining the swamp. And then the penguin says at one point, the glory that I yearn to recapture is the glory of Gotham. And so Shrek's candidate for mayor is trying to make Gotham great again. Yep. So there are all these touches. Max Shrek has a son, Chip Shrek, and there's this sort of sense of a Shrek dynasty. Now, before people complain that I don't know movie history, I'm aware that Max Shrek was the actor in uh, Murnau's Nosferatu, yes. who plays Count Orlock. At the time, that was seen as another one of uh, Burton's examples of his knowledge of movie history. By the way, I just looked this up. Again, this actor played essentially Count Dracula in Nosferatu. Mm -hmm. I assume that was a made-up name, but it's not. This man was named Friedrich Gustav Maximilian Schreck. His dates are 1879 to 1936. So, okay, he shortened his name a bit to Max Schreck, but that was his real name. Yep. And he appeared in other Murnau films and had something of a distinguished acting career. So anyway, I do get the F.W. Murnau reference in the name. But yes, but you're perfectly right, because in this case, the dangerous, inegalitarian enemy is not a vampire, it's a capitalist. A vampire in Marxist sense. Yes, and it was a distinct example of crony capitalism. That's what Burton gets right. And just one last point that completely freaked me out. Catwoman in the film was the secretary to Max Shrek, and they have a confrontation at the end of the film, and Max Shrek just says to her, Selena Kyle, you're fired. Yep, exactly. <laughs> that is a case where life imitated art. Yep. Because it's well before The Apprentice went on TV, but I, I looked at it and my first reaction was, oh my, they're just copying Trump from uh, The Apprentice, but I will go out on a limb and say Max Shrek is a portrait of Donald Trump. But anyway, getting back to our main theme here of freaks and the mirroring of freaks, at the beginning of the film, when the penguin first confronts Max Shrek, he says, you and I have something in common. We're both perceived as monsters, but somehow you are a respected monster, but I am to date not. So there it is. Max Shrek is this highly respected businessman in New York, close to the mayor and a, a mover and shaker in the community, and the penguin's living in a sewer in the city zoo. Later in the film, the uh, penguin is confronting Batman. He's made the Batmobile operate by remote control, and he's trying to get Batman to do something horrible there. And Batman thwarts him, and then the Penguin says, You're just jealous because I'm a genuine freak, and you have to wear a mask. And Batman answers, You might be right. Yep. And so, once again, the villain and the hero mirror each other. And then, towards the very end of the film, Batman confronts Catwoman and says he has gotten to know her as her real identity. Because, Selena, don't you see? We're the same. We're the same. Split right down the center. 
So at all points, the characters mirror each other. The respectable person is also a monster. Batman and Catwoman are divided. And so it really does work things out that way. But the main thing about the film that struck me at the time, even, and looks so powerful in retrospect, is the emergence of identity politics. Batman, historically, grew out of the 1930s. It was another one of these comic book responses to the Depression. And it really dealt with an old-style city politics where you had Tammany Hall a corrupt group running the city, and there were these ties between the police and the criminals, and the first Batman deals with that. The criminals are businessmen, and there was always a strong sense of crony capitalism in the Batman stories. And that's, of course, how Batman Returns begins, where you got this Max Schreck figure in cahoots with the uh, mayor of the city. But then the penguin emerges, and his backstory is that his parents, by the way, the father is portrayed by Paul Rubens. This was during the period of Paul Rubens' disgrace, and Tim Burton remembers his friends. When no one else was booking Paul Rubens, he put him in this film in a rather minor role, but nevertheless, it was a nice gesture on his part. But in any case, the Penguin's parents are so horrified by his freakish appearance as a child. He has flippers instead of hands, and they dump him in the water in the middle of the city park, and he's adopted by penguins, and they bring him up, and he's lived a life looking freakish, rejected by his own parents. And so when he confronts Max Schreck, he articulates the desire of so many Americans today. I want some respect. Yep. Recognition of my basic humanity. But most of all, he says, I want to find out who I am. And so the film stages his quest for his identity, and he goes to the city hall and goes to the records and eventually discovers who his parents were. In fact, he was born from rather wealthy parents. And it's actually staged as a public event. Everyone is watching as he goes into the Hall of Records and comes out. And he becomes a civic hero because he's willing to forgive his parents and accept his identity, which he describes as a child who was born a little different. Again, that's the typical Tim Burton theme there. And Max Schreck gets this idea to run the Penguin for mayor, and again in public as part of the mayoral campaign, praises the freedom to discover your roots. Yep. And the mayor becomes a celebrity because of this whole backstory, and he gets to proclaim, I am a man, I have a name. It's a bizarre identity he embraces, but his whole career is based on nothing other than his identity. And his discovery of his identity, I think it's Shrek who says, it's human nature to fear the unusual. And suddenly the whole public in Gotham City supports this guy because he's discovered his identity. Poor Batman is trying to tell everybody he's the head of this gang and he's responsible for urban chaos in Gotham. But people just get charmed by this story of someone who's reclaimed his identity. And that is then paralleled by feminism in the case of Catwoman. Yes. She is Selena Kyle. 
this rather mousy secretary to Max Schreck, who lives alone, an empty life, and then because Max Schreck kills her, she gets reincarnated as Catwoman. By the way, Michelle Pfeiffer deserved an Oscar for this film. <laughs> and I'm only half joking at that. She turns in a remarkable performance in that she plays two characters, and she plays them so superbly. It's amazing that she portrays the unglamorous, unattractive, mousy, retiring, shy Selena Kyle, who takes everything from her boss, and then the marvelous Catwoman, uh, and with all due respect to Julie Newmar in the TV series, Michelle Pfeiffer is my all-time Catwoman, and she's so assertive and powerful. Again, I'm half-joking, and no one at those times would consider an Oscar for a role in a comic book movie, but her performance is really extraordinary. But after she's made the transformation, she says, I am Catwoman, hear me roar, which, of course, is the great feminist pastiche. Feminist slogan there. So you really have, in a way, the two forces which have now come to dominate politics, at least on the Democratic Party side, feminism and various other forms of identity politics. And in that sense, it actually traces the great shift in urban politics, which is at least one of the cores of American politics. And again, it had been traditionally so uh, dominated by things like labor unions and city bosses the sort of Mayor Daly types. And now you've got the situation where it's all these issues of identity that dominate and crowd out the other issues. Yeah. The movie that really says something profound about American politics. Yeah. The movie is one scandalous, shocking scene after another. You can't believe what you're seeing. It has no claim at all to realism, but it is a very earnest and very literal description of a transformation in America that freakishness can be institutionalized. Part of that is celebrity, part of that is the cult of successful men, like the Donald Trump look-alike in this case, down to the weirdo hair played by Christopher Walken, but also in this other form. Up until then, the American idea, which to some extent is still presented in the film, was that you have to flatter the people by being one of them, and therefore by declaring that being the people, being all the same, is what we're all looking for. We have safety in numbers, we have comfort in recognizing ourselves in each other. Freakishness, however, introduces a new idea. Being like other people is overrated. It will not get you attention and it will not get you anywhere. You should, in fact, do the opposite. You should stake your claim not on conforming to liberal norms from mid-century America. You should oppose that. You should try to bring them down. You should try to attack that entire system, that establishment, to speak like the new left. Yeah, and it has so many elements of modern mediated politics. They bring in image consultants for the Penguins' mayoral campaign. We have all these moments of televised conferences and so on. And the only way Batman prevents Penguins becoming mayor is he manages to jam the Penguins broadcast and substitute a recording where he's expressing openly his contempt for the people of Gotham. And yep. again, a very interesting comment on American politics. Think about that, how obsessive we have become about leaks as the only opportunity to leak the ugly truth and finally wake people up. 
like the October surprise of previous political contests, it's a desperate attempt to stave off media manipulation. In the liberal mid-century, people really did believe in TV-based celebrity as a way to enlighten America, to bring America together. People really did very obediently tune in every evening to listen to the same people tell them the news as though those talking heads, those anchors were some kind of experts, which is completely ridiculous. You know, It's true that we have a crazy situation now, but it was just as crazy to believe that Walter Cronkite is our superior in political intelligence or information or judgment. But uh, that's what it was like back then. Batman Returns is already announcing that that age is over, that celebrity is turning into scandal, TV is turning into reality TV, and that media manipulation is going crazy. That actually goes back to Batman, where one of the things the Joker has done is to poison cosmetics. And you see the talking heads on the news shows, they stop using makeup. (laughs) And they look seedier and seedier as the scenes go on. And it is this takedown of the perfectly groomed talking head news report. Exactly. Tim Burton never lets that opportunity pass. Yeah, Burton is a great student of the media, and he's just very aware of the mediated character politics. And indeed, in his films, he shows that the line between the media and celebrity and politics and all other forms of distinction are gradually being effaced, and American politics will never be the same as a result. That's why, again, in retrospect, if Max Schreck really was Donald Trump, then the film was profoundly prophetic in a way we didn't understand at the time. Yeah, at the time, people still believed in television. People believed in CNN, in the myths of objectivity and uh, compliance, obedience of the audience. But all of that has gone to hell, and instead we have turned TV into reality TV and celebrity into continuous scandal-mongering, and the news into increasingly hysterical attempts to attract some attention, to still matter if only a little. Nobody took Tim Burton seriously at the time, because the times weren't prepared, they weren't ready. And now that TV doesn't have an audience anymore, all of a sudden it's obvious how prophetic he was. Yeah, right. I remember thinking at the time, Batman Returns is about identity politics, and I was quite struck by it. But the cynicism about the media, I think, went by people at the time. And of course, it's picked up in Mars Attacks, where again, the news media are exposed as fools, toadiers to the people in power. Exactly. They're all part of the same corrupt regime. So it's fair enough to see these as consistent themes in his movies. Uh, Again, it's why people can speak about a Tim Burton movie. Now, when they do that, it's largely because of a certain look that they have. For example, Nightmare Before Christmas, he didn't even direct. But everybody thinks of it as a Tim Burton movie because it had that Tim Burton uh, look. And he does have an incredibly strong visual imagination that he's able to impose on these films. But as we're talking about, you see there are many thematic continuities that, again, grow out of the fact that he grew up in Burbank, California, in a sense, in the heart of the film industry, and was saturated by television, by movies. And he has this kind of love-hate relationship to the pop culture traditions in which he can imitate earlier films and is always obsessed with these figures out of popular culture and yet has a sufficient distance from them to be capable of criticizing them and criticizing the whole world and the media, which again he appears to be doing in his latest Dumbo. Yes, yes. 
I think we can move on to Betelgeuse, which is also a strange criticism of urban elites at the end of the 20th century. Betelgeuse came out in 88. His second movie, after Pee Wee Herman's Big Adventure, also a big success, unexpected. Not just because he was a nobody at the time, it's because nobody thought that this kind of movie could be successful in America. Why? Because it's such a freak show. Who wants to show up for that? Well, pay attention, folks. There's a career in the making here. So, Beetlejuice is the story of a young girl, played by Winona Ryder, who has to grow up, but she doesn't know how. Her parents are weirdos of a very typically American variety. The father is a real estate developer, big business guy, a complete Philistine, and he has no interest in things except buying them and what you might do to make a profit. And her mother is a modern artist wannabe who makes incredibly ugly things and calls that art to seem as sophisticated as her husband is a Philistine. You know, this is instantly recognizable. This is the stuff of Tom Wolfe's novels, again. But it creates this psychological problem for the girl. She just wants to be a normal American person. And that means the ghosts of Alec Baldwin and his wife. These very pleasant, very small town, idiosyncratic, a loving couple that, you know, they just drop dead in a river by accident and then they try to haunt their house. And they're her good spirits. They're the angels on her shoulder, so to speak, trying to help her out in her fight against her parents who are soulless for the most part. But it turns out these kinds of normal Americans just aren't good enough to hold their own against the rapacious and contemptuous elites. Not even as ghosts can they haunt their own houses. They are turned into a freak show, into a modern art happening, and it's going to sell tickets, so it helps business as well. At this point, Beetlejuice intervenes. This girl is tempted by the dark side, so to speak. She's tempted to let the fury inside of her take shape, and so you get this guy who first shows up as a reference to David Lynch's Dune, as a sandworm but then shows up as Michael Keaton doing his best vulgarian criminal from the underclass role as the complete horror these upper-class parents might conceive. Again, a lot of genres get mixed in this and dreams about American happiness from the 50s, and he's the nightmarish counterpart to all that. That again shows Tim Burton's intention to reveal the ugly truth about society and the dangerous possibility that this will lead to freaks who have realized that there's nobody upholding the moral consensus anymore. If you want to go crazy, you can go crazy. Just let it all hang out. Let your freak flag fly. Yeah, I mean, at its core, it's a send-up of suburban life. And this is another common theme. It's the great theme of Edward Scissorhands, which we'll get to, I guess, in a moment. But Tim Burton grew up in Burbank. It's right in the middle of the greater Los Angeles sprawling metropolitan area. In some ways, suburbs are nice places to live. It was the great dream of the 1950s that we'd all live in suburbs. And Burton wants to expose the soullessness of the suburb. And in particular, in this film, the most freakish people turn out to be the ordinary people. That couple you were talking about, I think it's Catherine O'Hara and Jeffrey Jones. Yes, exactly. Play them. 
you know, their daughter has rebelled against that in the goth mode. And indeed, in a way, the film shows how the ordinary suburban life spawns this world of freakishness as a reaction against it. And the whole joke of the film is how benign these ghost-like forces are in the modern world. Yep. They can't put a dent into the suburban hegemony in the world. <laughs> they can't yep. frighten these people. I mean, they're too dumb to be frightened. And so Beetlejuice is ostensibly a demon, but turns out to be a joke. Yeah, it's a, you're absolutely right that it's remarkable that film was as successful as it was. Eventually spawned a TV cartoon series. I don't know how it ever got the green light. Yep. Anyone would have put up money to produce that. And yet it's such an original film. I mean, there's never been quite anything like it. And Burton, to his credit, resisted a sequel. Yes. The studios were all set to go with a sequel in their typical fashion. I mean, Burton's, I guess, his only sequel is Batman Returns. Yes. Clearly, I think that's a case where the sequel surpasses the original. Maybe he felt there was something left to be done with the Batman material, and it certainly showed that. So Beetlejuice comes out of something very American, as you say, something as ordinary as suburban life and people's claim to it that we should have this forever, and they forget about things like death. Yes. The uh, Alec Baldwin, Gina Davis couple. I mean, they don't know they're dead. It takes them quite a while to figure out that what's happened is they're dead. Uh, (laughs) It's like a T.S. Eliot theme in The Wasteland. You're dead and you don't know it. Yep. So it's just this way that Burton moves between the high and the low, between very simple motifs of American popular culture and really rather sophisticated twists on it. It's one of the things that really makes him, in my view, really one of the great movie directors, at least in these early films we've been discussing. Shall we turn to Edward Scissorhands? Yes, we should. This is the first time Tim Burton's Europeans and Americans theme, the past versus the future theme, really shows up. You already mentioned that the production design for Batman already hinted at that, all this gothic stuff from Europe's dark past. Batman has an obsession with European knights, with East Asian samurai, all these armors, soldiers. He's clearly putting on an act because he's deeply obsessed with these things from the past. But there's also the techno-futurism of America. In Edward Scissorhands, you see the gothic castle, the gothic character, Everything that culminates in the thought that beauty equals death, that beauty somehow ties you to the dead past. Yeah, there's that marvelous panoramic shot where you see this quintessential American suburban town, and then you see this gothic castle on the hill. It's just beautiful. Exactly. It's a juxtaposition that nobody could believe. There's no dark hills with haunted castles atop any suburbia, but somehow it does hang over America. Goth was a big thing in 80s music, and there are always things in America that pull people back, like the Batman stories and things like that, in the direction of European inequality, of aristocracy, of its great splendor, of its great cruelty, all of the things that are lacking in a middle-class American life, where the streets are a grid, there's more numbers than names, the names are made up anyway, there's no past, there's no real sense of place, and there's a lot of sameness that can feel oppressive to people. 
and in the middle of all this is dropped Edward Scissor's hands, one of the rare portraits of the artist in a Tim Burton movie. He is a sheltered creature, he lacks experience, he has a sense for the beautiful and the great talent for making images, but he can't touch anything that he loves. And of course, he was created by Vincent Price. And that gives you your European connection again, because yes. Vincent Price, who actually was a very cultivated man, an art collector, and represented the Gothic in so many of the horror movies of the 40s. And it's a Frankenstein story. Yes. Vincent Price has created Edward Scissorhands, and as in the classic Frankenstein story, he's botched the creation in this case because the Vincent Price character dies before he can give uh, Edward the uh, proper hands. But it is that sense that in some ways our legacy from Europe is Frankensteinian. By the way, I have to say that Edgar Ulmer's film The Black Cat deals completely with just the issues we've been talking about here and the tension between the European Gothic and a sort of American naivete and unfounded optimism. But in any case, they have this juxtaposition of the American suburb with this creature that's been improperly created and not properly prepared for the world. And he's an artist, but his artistry is reduced to prettifying suburban lawns and doing women's hairdos. And in a way, that's a great image of the uh, reduction of art in America, that that's what this talent is left to do. He could have been a Michelangelo-like sculptor, but instead he's doing lawns and hairdos. Yep, because it's America. There's no tragedy in America. Everything has to be a happy end. So, you know, a hairdo does that. Lawn sculpture does that. You can't have the great tragedies that inspire art and that give it its interest. That's, again, exactly the theme of Ulmer's The Black Cat. And let's not forget to stress here the freakish aspect and, again, the way in which the freakishness makes the guy a genius. His freakishness becomes his talent, and he's embraced. Again, you would think of him as the Frankenstein monster, that people would be repelled by him at his monstrosity. And to some extent, they do, and they're suspicious of him. But when he shows he can help them with their lawns and their hairdos, America, and particularly female suburban America, embraces him. Yep, because women care about beauty far more than men do in America. And of course, it does start with their look, the way they dress, the makeup, the cosmetics, all that stuff. They are more sensitive to this, and of course, more sensitive to girlish-looking boys like Johnny Depp, who was a celebrity, although in Tim Burton movies he always looks like a corpse. But that's part of Burton's strange artistry, that the darkness inside the artist is all on the outside. You can see it in his freakish look. The dark hair, the black leather, the corpse-like face, and his scars. There's a great word by the French playwright Henri de Monterland. Happiness writes in white ink on white pages. If you're busy having a fun, successful, normal life, you don't become a creator, an artist. You don't try to do all this other stuff. But in the Tim Burton movie, the weirdness that makes for artists is all on display. It's all physically visible. It's freakishness. And yet, as you pointed out, in America, this is not like a European reaction to Frankenstein. People think they can embrace this because Americans are all about equality. And it makes for a strange form of inclusiveness. Yes, and putting to commercial use 
this freakishness. Yeah, he's got to start the business. Yeah, the film really does, in many respects, capture the spirit of Frankenstein and the sympathy we develop for the Frankenstein monster. He's suffered, and he suffers because of his lack of acceptance, and it's tied with a kind of naivete. Like the Frankenstein monster, Edward Scissorhands doesn't understand the world. He's been brought up in isolation. He's not been allowed to mix and again, he would have the problem the Frankenstein monster does of not having another creature of his kind. Yes. And there's a real pathos to it, and I give Johnny Depp a lot of credit for that, and it's perhaps the greatest example in uh, Burton's career of the wonderful symbiosis he developed with an actor. Helen Bottom Carter is another example. Danny DeVito is, but I think most of Depp's best work has been done for Burton, and then there's Pirates of the Caribbean. Uh, the the disnification of Johnny Depp. Yeah. I do think he's a really good actor, and it's not his fault that he's that handsome. Yep. You can't really blame him for that. And he too is a freak. Certainly in his private life, uh, which of course is now public. Uh, Exactly. All the celebrities are being exposed, and in the light of day, they look really disappointing usually. Yeah. Shall we wrap this up with Ed Wood? Yep, it's his sixth movie. We have discussed the previous five, and we discussed Mars Attacks, the seventh, on another podcast. So this really sets us up to combine our work on this. Yeah, Ed Wood is another one of his best movies. It's so extraordinary and didn't do well at the box office. It was his first flop. Yeah, but not a critical flop. And uh, Martin Landau did get an Academy Award for playing Beta Lugosi. And of course, it's such a self-conscious film. I wonder how much of the audience knew that Ed Wood was a real character, a real person. I mean, I grew up with his movies. Like Tim Burton, I grew up watching late-night TV in the 50s, and especially the horror shows put on by a famous guy named John Zachary in New York. And so, uh, you know, I knew Plan 9 from Outer Space, which, you know, is generally considered the worst movie ever made. I think it was voted that at one point. I have to say, I recently I saw a film called Ratpocalypse. <laughs> have you ever heard of it? It really gives Plan 9 from Outer Space a run for its money. Whoa. It has similar aspects to it. There are enough real actors in it to qualify as a movie, and it just the, the plot, though, is totally absurd. And Anyway, I gather Burton grew up on the Ed Wood movies, and uh, Ed Wood is a character perfectly made for Tim Burton. He was a kind of freak in that he was a transvestite, and that comes up in the film, and uh, it interferes with his personal life, shall we say. And I think his first movie, he was supposed to be doing a movie on Christine Jorgensen, the most publicized transsexual in the 50s, and instead, Ed Wood turned it into a movie about a transvestite. Yes. The movie's named Glenn or Glenda. Ed Wood was a strange combination of the normal and the abnormal. Again, Johnny Depp plays Edward, and what he captures is this all-American optimism about. He had no talent whatsoever in making films, no training, and yet he always thought he could become a great filmmaker. The genius of this film is the confrontation it engineers towards the end, Edward meeting Orson Welles. Now, this did not happen ever, but it's such a perfect scene because in some ways, Burton is examining the myth of the auteur. 
this French idea of the filmmaker as this solitary genius who, like Hitchcock, creates a consistent world throughout his films and so on. The way I put it, the film Edward offers the proposition that an auteur created the greatest film ever made and an auteur created the worst film ever made. That is, Wells created Citizen Kane and Edward created Plan 9 from Outer Space. And, and they meet in a bar and they're both complaining about their lack of financing. Yep. You know, they want, they're making a great film, but damn it if they're not giving me the money I need. And it has that moment where I guess Wells is making touch of evil and he says, you can't believe what happened. They want Charlton Heston to play a Mexican. <laughs> and, it's, you know, oh, the studio is interfering. And, you know, this is the horror of the auteur, of the great film genius, that someone's interfering with his genius. And, you know, you can say, wow, Citizen Kane. You know, Orson Welles was given complete control over that film, coming off his triumph in his War of the World radio broadcast, which we discussed recently. Yes, we did. And these people who have the auteur theory, and it's largely the French, you know, Jerry Lewis is one of the great auteurs in their view. But persons reminds, yeah, an auteur could produce a Citizen Kane, but he also could produce a Plan 9 from Outer Space. Basically, Edward financed his own films by raising money from very gullible investors, and the result is Plan 9 from outer space. So there's nothing inherent to being an auteur that says you're going to produce a good movie. It's just saying you'll have total control of it, and that could just as easily produce the worst movie ever made as the best ever made. And that, again, the first time I saw that scene and realized, you know, they got a pretty good uh, Orson Welles lookalike, I was just stunned to see what was unfolding on the screen. So again, we have the hero is freakish, and he finds a circus world, in effect. This little company of artists that he's using, one of them is Tor Johnson, the Swedish wrestler that appears in Edward's movies, and these other people that, you know, he befriended Bella Lugosi. Yep. In his old and really decrepit condition towards the end of his life. And in fact, it turns out what allowed Wood to make his movies was this exploitation of star power. When he could say that Bela Lugosi was in his film, people could put money into it. And one of the things that really pushes, elevates Plan 9 into worst move ever made is Bela Lugosi died just after the film began and his character had to be written out of the plot or they substituted a double. It was no Martin Landau. I think it may have even been the dentist of one of the chief investors in the film who wow, would yeah. uh, appear as Lugosi with a cape <laughs> over his face. <laughs> yes, exactly. I mean, uh, things like, oh, the great thing about the film, filming in daylight is obviously easier than filming at night. So they filmed all the scenes in daylight and somebody claimed to have a process that would allow you to nocturnalize the scenes to make them look like that. And it doesn't work at all. <laughs> Wow. Anyway, uh, the film really has a lot going for it. But depth gives real depth to the character of Edward. And I think, you know, Burton, it is a tribute to Edward and to the B movie in general. I mean, I grew up watching B movies, uh, horror films, sci fi films, gangster films, westerns. There's a kind of energy to them 
I liked Kurosawa. I liked Fellini. I confess, I didn't like Ingmar Bergman films when I was young. Mm -hmm. They were too slow-moving and too profound for me. And I've always felt that there's a kind of energy to American popular culture, even at its lowest, and in a sense, precisely at its lowest. And I think that is something that Wood understands. And this was kind of his hymn, his homage to Ed Wood and the power, the kind of crazy power of film that this Ed Wood was Tim Burton. He was just enchanted with films. He thought that he could make them. He couldn't. Fortunately, Tim Burton was able to make them. But the other thing is he creates this really charming world of Wood's circle, Mm -hmm. his associates. And it's a combination of these down and out actors and actresses. And again, there's such brilliant casting. Tor Johnson is played by George the Animal Steel, a real wrestler whom I remember from the days I was fascinated with pro wrestling. It's a kind of typecasting, but he was known as George the Animal Steel because of his propensity to chew the ropes and the turnbuckles in the middle of the bout and sort of eat sawdust. And again, he was recognizable as George the Animal Steel to me. It is a circus-like grouping where it's a bunch of freaks. And then the investors. And that's, of course, the real joke he's having in the film that the investors are a bunch of freaks. One segment of them are religious fanatics and who get shocked by the blasphemy of some of the films Wood wants to make. And you see, in a way, the Hollywood process there putting together a film you have to get the cast, and the cast better be bankable, and you got to find the investors. In a way, the whole film was a parody of how a film gets made. And I mean, Wood actually got films made on spectacularly low budgets, and they're terrible. On the other hand, you know, I mentioned Edgar Ulmer. He was the king of the B-movie. He was famous for being able to shoot a film on a short schedule and come in under budget, just like all the the great films that American International made under Samuel Z. Arkoff in the 60s. And what Burton is showing in that film is Hollywood at its most basic, which really is at its lowest. Yes. And yet there's still a joy of filmmaking in the film. And Ed Wood has all the enthusiasm, all the entrepreneurship, all the vision. He just completely lacks talent. Yep, that's right. And yet I I think Burton is celebrating film at its most basic, the act of putting together a film and not having something in your way. And maybe the underlying story we're telling here by going back to his earlier films is that when he became too successful in Hollywood, I think a lot of the steam went out of his movies. Again, the films we've been discussing are still my favorite among his films. Now, he got bankable pretty early. After Beetlejuice succeeded, people must have thought, God, this guy can make any film succeed. And he got a major role in creating this Batman film. And then when it scored so big at the box office. Yes. I think at the time it was the fourth biggest moneymaker of all time or something like that. So some of these films we're talking about were made at a point when he was already an A-list director. But I think there's an impetus that carried over from his creative start. But I think maybe he became too bankable. You know, after Alice made a billion dollars, yep, he was just 
flooded with money for films. And maybe, again, I'll have to see Dumbo. I promise I will see Dumbo. But maybe that's the story that Dumbo was telling, that you don't want to be bought out by the big money and taken to dreamland. Yeah, exactly. Ed Wood is the opposite of Edward Scissorhands. He has none of the talent, but he can be part of the world at some level. He's at least a freak among other freaks. And because you take the question of talent or competence out of the way, everything else, the moral and the practical questions, show up at the center. And you see what's good about Hollywood, all the craft, all the organization. But the egalitarianism of Ed Wood is premised on failure. Because if you had success, all of a sudden, you know, whose name gets top billing, who gets most points on the gross, where the money goes, how it comes, who gets the press, all of this stuff would turn you into the glamour politics of Hollywood. The all-American, crafty egalitarianism of movie making only works at this level of failure or of independent movie making or shoestring budgets. There, certain American qualities show up that otherwise are closed or even made unbelievable by big studio success and everything that that kind of institutionalization brings with it. Now, the other part of Ed Wood is that, indeed, he is dauntless. His typical phrase after failure is, my next one will be better. Yes. (laughs) And Johnny Depp sells you on that. As much as this guy is a cretin and the sort of guy that people would call a creep, he's got really an all-American heart. Absolutely, yeah. Because he believes in the movie so much, when he shouldn't, given that he has no talent, he doesn't exploit anybody, which is also an idealization, but it does show some of what people expect out of the movies. I don't think it's the case with any great director that a lot of actors stick around with him just for the money or the fame, for the success. I think that to some extent they do build a community like you see in Ed Wood, like the actors that have stuck with Tim Burton or the ones with the Coen brothers or the ones all the way back in, say, John Ford's movies or things like that. It really is the case that it is a bit of a model of a community because people share in on a common task and on something they love and that brings out the all-American quality of organizing for common purposes. It's downright Tocquevillian. Yeah, in particular, what Wood does is what any good director has to do, improvise. Yes. Scavenge. You've got the constraints of the budget, you've got the constraints of time, and he gets the movies done. If he can't get an octopus, he gets the arm of an octopus and yep. has Bela Lugosi wave it around. And, you know, the results are laughable in Ed Wood's films, but I'm sure Tim Burton feels this way about his own films. At various points, he had to cut corners. And it is true that even the best of directors can never achieve perfection. And it's something a successful movie maker has to face that at some point, you got to finish the film. Yep. And it may involve cutting corners. Orson Welles looking to finish his film of Othello, and he's got no money left to shoot the last scene he has to do uh, with costumes. So he stages it in a Turkish bath. (laughs) So he doesn't have to explain why Othello has no clothing on and Iago has no clothing on. I mean, that's a famous example of this. And there's something very American and entrepreneurial about making movies. It's something that occurs in the real world. It is making things and it takes money and it takes time. And Ed Wood has the perpetual optimism of the American entrepreneur. He does fail time and time again, but at least the movies get made. 
To have made as many movies as he did with absolutely no talent and no real financial backing, I mean, it's just extraordinary. Yes, it is. And that's why it's nice that he is memorialized in this film, Tim Burton's tribute to him, and a tribute to a side of Hollywood that meant a lot to Burton and that really he drew upon in his career. Again, his inspiration comes from people like Ed Wood and not so much from uh, F.W. Mornow, although with the Max Schreck reference, he does pay tribute to him as well. I think overall, he's had a remarkable career, and I think we've discussed seven what I regard as masterpieces today. I'm not so thrilled uh, with his later films, but if he only made those seven films, he would be a great filmmaker, and he did make them. Yes. One of the problems people have is they expect great masterpieces uniformly from great artists. I'm going to go on record here that Shakespeare wrote some really bad plays. <laughs> Time of Athens, Titus Andronicus, Love's Labor's Lost. Not everything's Hamlet, Othello, and Macbeth. I mean, people think creativity is so much easier than it is. And I don't think there's any artist who didn't have many failures in order eventually to achieve his successes. It's interesting in Burton's career that he reeled off these successes at the beginning. Uh H.G. Wells is like that. This sequence at the beginning of Time Machine, Invisible Man, Island of Dr. Moreau, War of the Worlds, that's just extraordinary. They're not quite his first four books because he wrote, you know, a novel about a bicycle at one point. But (laughs) still, there are these people who are best at the beginning of their careers. Shakespeare's not one of them. It took him quite a while, I think, to find himself in his earliest plays, the Henry VI plays, Comedy of Errors. They're not among his best, Mm -hmm. but artists have different careers. William Wordsworth wrote all his great poetry when he was young and then wrote some of the absolutely worst poetry ever written for year after year after year. (laughs) It's just miraculous what artists are able to do and to expect them to deliver on demand. You know, Rainer Maria Rilke may be the greatest poet of the 20th century, but about two months of his life were spent producing that. He wrote the sonnets of Orpheus and his Duino elegies, maybe in the space of two months. And they're just extraordinary. It's the most extraordinary outpouring of lyric poetry in the 20th century. But much of his life, he was frustrated. He couldn't write. He was about to give up when suddenly this inspiration came to him. He wrote a lot of other good poems, but nothing of the level of the sonnets of Orpheus or the Duino. So it's a kind of miracle, artistic creativity. There's a lot of skill goes into it, a lot of practice, a lot of hard work and discipline. But in the end, there's something mysterious about creativity. And I think we can twist ourselves into knots if we try to make every film of an artist we admire into a masterpiece. I don't want to be the one to you know, explain that Dark Shadows is a great film just because <laughs> Tim Burton made it, or Sleepy Hollow, to name some of my least favorite of his films. But if he'd only made the seven films we've discussed today, he would be a major figure in the history of cinema. Yeah, I think that with all these movies, you see his youthful concerns, and he works things out just right as a movie, and he lets it go at that. He got lucky that most of them were as successful as they were, and so he could go on to the next one. Afterwards, starting with Sleepy Hollow, he turned to mythologies to try to examine what is going on in America and in American myths, and I think there's a lot of interest in that, but it was never the same attraction for the audiences or for critics for that matter, and he just transformed who he was as an artist. 
the youthful work and the adult work and perhaps it is best to end here and as you put it some of this is inspiration there's a reason he's obsessed with freaks they're not fully in control of what they're doing they're the opposite of an institution like hollywood like dreamland like television which churns things out regularly as though you could ever do that but there are some good examples of that when you think of deadwood or even the x-files Chris Carter yeah. was working on a schedule and a tight budget and turning things out. I just happened to see the episode Humbug of the X-Files this morning, written by the great Darren Morgan. And it's like a Tim Burton film. It takes place in a traveling freak show. And I was just struck at how Tim Burton likes the episode Humbug, one of the most famous uh, of the X-Files episodes. And the same notion of the camaraderie of freaks and their clannishness. And Anyway. Uh, yeah. Well, sir, thank you for joining me. It was a pleasure to talk Tim Burton with you, and I hope our audience will take a new look at these movies, remember them, and see what it is Tim Burton has to say about America, with good and bad alike, and where it is that really unusual people stand to the majority that is nevertheless endlessly fascinated with them. Yes, I really enjoyed having this opportunity. I've written about Mars Attacks. It's in my book, The Invisible Hand in Popular Culture, but I've never gotten to state my views of the Batman films or Pee-wee's Big Adventure. So this was, uh, I thought, a great opportunity. I really enjoyed it. Well, we're on the record now, and we're going to have to face the music. Thanks a lot, sir. All the best. My pleasure. My pleasure.